Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm David. I'm Sean. And today we're going to be talking about Wes Craven and, uh, in particular, The People Under the Stairs, our delayed tribute to uh, the uh, director. The late director. The late director, yes. He scared us so that all the little children in the world would pee their pants. <laughs> so... And to be fair, he has. He's. I'm sure he has made a few people pee their pants, especially with Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, probably. I mean, certainly between Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, the uh, and then late in his career, the Scream franchise uh, are uh, far and away his most uh, his most visible uh, contributions to horror. Uh, but uh, I guess and it's partly for that reason that we're, uh, I wanted to do the People Under the Stairs, which is. Uh, uh, not his most uh, famous film, but I think in many ways uh, a kind of culmination of him as auteur, but we'll get to that in due course. Didn't we do a, a Wes Craven movie for Skiffy and Fanti? Could have swore we did one, but maybe I'm mixing up directors? Uh, which film were you think? Um, I can't think of one off the top of my head. I don't think we did because I'm looking at his his list and I and I don't see anything that looks familiar that from the show. So I think it was someone some other director. Was the the one with the oh, the damn guy from um from Tremors in it? Fred Ward, Kevin Bacon. No, no, no. The 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 guy who ran the uh the, the Asian guy that ran the uh, store. Oh, you're Prince of Darkness, John Carpenter. You're thinking of? Yeah. Okay. Because they they have such very similar feels. Does that make sense? Well, they're they're from uh, certainly they're they're from the same era, um, okay. and I I guess they're, they're, there's so some of their films will have uh, I guess some of that same atmosphere, but I would say just simply by virtue of the uh, the period in which they were made, I think they are quite different filmmakers. Uh, I mean the yeah I can see a certain overlap between the uh, the sort of the settings and uh, the uh, iconic experience of Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, but um, I mean, you've got Carpenter's very distinct use of music, and Craven also, uh, depending on the film, will it can be a much more extreme filmmaker than John Carpenter. So uh, Carpenter, I mean, though he, uh, you know, he'll give us all the the, the gushy makeup effects that we would uh, wish for in the Thing. Uh, never took his audiences to um, as uncomfortable a place as uh, Craven did with Last House on the Left. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so um, yeah, I I think I'm uh, what you said is I'm attaching to the atmosphere because this film, the atmosphere feels very similar with the way it sets itself up, minus some of the political elements, and we'll, we'll get into that when we right. talk about the, yeah. the stairs. Um, but to back up a little bit, we should mention what it is that we've been watching recently because David may have been watching something because he may be teaching something. Well, I've been carrying on with my uh, European horror course, and uh, so the, the the last few films we've been looking at, we've been looking at the uh, the Italian gothics of uh, the Mario Bava's uh, Black Sunday and Lisa and the Devil, uh, which uh, certainly has made um, uh, added to my uh, my pleasure of, of seeing Crimson Tide, uh, Crimson Peak, uh, which is squarely in the the Gothic tradition, um, and we've also been uh, looking at the uh, the Giallos and uh, like uh, 
uh, with, uh, again, Bava's Blood and Black Lace and uh, A Bay of Blood, also known as Twitch of the Death Nerve. Also, uh, by uh, speaking of Wes Craven, it's also known as Last House on the Left Part 2, even though it has nothing to do with Last House on the Left and was made prior. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, uh, so, so I have a question then. Yeah. Well, it's European, so this would not qualify. Because uh, immediately when you said European horror, I don't know why I latched on to what we do in the shadows. <laughs> Even though it's not it's not European, it's it's uh, New Zealand. But <laughs> right, yeah, yes. Uh, the the when when I get to the uh, the the more recent years, I guess we're we're pretty much the course is going to wrap up with the new French extreme. Okay. Um, uh, slightly cheating uh, at the. Um, uh, the film we'll be looking at is Calvaire, which is Belgian but um, fr- French language, uh, and um, and fits into the the movement of films like Martyrs and uh, Inside and uh, Frontiers and High Tension. Um, cool. So, uh, so kind of full circle. Since the horror movie is invented in France, we're going to be ending in France. Um, uh, and uh, but we, just this week we did Tombs of the Blind Dead, which is a film I have a great deal of fondness for. Uh, and uh, you know you've got it, it's a film where we have zombies, Templar zombies, Templar zombies with swords on horses in slow motion, <laughs> chanting, and you know that's really that is what is good in life. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent. Uh, well, for me, uh, so for my space opera class that I'm teaching, it's primarily a literature class, but the university is letting me do a supplementary film screening for it that is technically not mandatory, but a number of students have been going to. So we are going through the uh, entire Star Wars trilogy, the original at this moment. Um, we've watched some Star Trek, some old television uh, from like the old days, some like really, really old like 1950s children's space opera. You mean like television. Rocky Jones Space Ranger sort of stuff? Uh, like Tom Corbett's Space Cadets. Right. Uh, we watched some Lost in Space. Uh, and, uh, the, the one that makes me just, just, just giddy inside is a show called Space Patrol, which you can find some episodes on YouTube. And it is one of the most ridiculously lovable shows <laughs> ever. It's not good. It's not good. Tom Corbett's even worse, but but it's sort of charmingly bad because it's old. It's for kids. The characters are archetypes. They've got, you know, they've got the bumbling idiot friend who's really cute and you just kind of want to hug him until you realize that the actor like died at 38 from like brain cancer, which is horrible. But yeah, it's got just all these lovable characters. The stories are really contained. They're, for the most part, almost well-written, except they're not. Uh, and it's just... It's just a, it's just silly. It's just amazingly silly, but also enormously clever because they had like a budget of ten dollars, and they had to film everything live because they didn't have a way to record and like transport it at that time. Uh, and so yeah, so they're recording these things live with like an eight dollar budget, trying to do sci-fi shows, and doing an okay job while being ridiculous. But the best part is always the advertising. Oh yeah. It's yeah. that old school. We still haven't figured out how to do TV advertising yet, so we're doing it just like we do on radio, but with a person there. <laughs> They're hilarious. Yeah, that sounds great. Are you yeah. doing are you doing the things like This Island Earth or like other kind of like early um theatrical space operas? No, um 
I don't have a lot of space because we only meet once a week for the film. So uh, I'm trying to trace it all the way till the present. And uh, and then I found out some of my students had never seen Star Wars and I felt that they could not go on living without having done so. <laughs> so uh, I, I took up two extra screening days to make sure we go through the whole trilogy. Um, so it's mostly we went through a lot of early stuff like Star Trek, a lot of early TV stuff. Now we're in film. We'll go to Rathacon next uh, after we finish Star Wars. And then to some more recent stuff, um, we're going to watch a parody like Galaxy Quest um, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then uh, I haven't decided whether or not I'm going to take the risk and uh, show 2001 as a space opera uh, or just go with Interstellar. Hmm, interesting. Someone is listening to this right now and banging their head against the wall. Yeah. 2001 is not a space opera. <laughs> I want you to die. <laughs> It's so. uh, it certainly isn't it wouldn't it certainly doesn't leap to mind as a space opera. No, and I I, I fully understand that because uh, it is not a space opera in the traditional sense. I make the argument that space operas scale need not necessarily be spatial. That it could actually be um, evolutionary scale, which is why I would define it 2001 as a space opera because it is indeed. Uh, a wide-reaching, massive-scale evolutionary uh, argument about humanity. It's also got other things going on, but, you know, uh, the very fact that the, he becomes the star baby child gizmo and goes back to Earth, and I believe in the book, destroys it. Or in the, in the original script, I think. Um, Maybe in the original script he destroys yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. Um, did, we're uh, brave enough to do that in the movie, I'm afraid. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, and but and you don't find that. Uh, I'm curious. Is uh, space opera the? Um, I mean, of course, the other thing that tends to be associated with it is just uh, well, to use the technical term, the whiz bangery. Um, the uh, so that the is would you say the tone um, pace um, of the uh, is is integral to the the form or uh, uh, or not? I mean the. Um, I'm just again thinking of uh, uh, 2001's very deliberate pace, um, as opposed to the uh, the I mean the the obvious space operatic quality of Star Wars. Yeah, so I, I define it as one of the three faces of space opera. So there's the the sort of full on like Flash Gordon pastiche, which is Star Wars. Uh, where it's just it's just the adventures in space there may be some politics but it's really like laser guns and swords and we're fighting and running around in spaceships and then there's star trek which is the more socially conscious space opera which would eventually lead to something like the new space opera um, and then there is the 2001 which is the intellectual space opera okay interesting. It sounds pretentious but <laughs> i i think that those are the three faces of space opera uh, and they're just easily defined by the films. And I mean, like Interstellar is a space opera, but it it obviously makes enormous reference backwards to things like 2001 and to other types of uh, uh, films. Uh, I mean, in some ways is is making a, a, a motion towards some of the aspects of Star Trek even though it doesn't have the same political messaging of Star Trek. Yeah, well, it's uh, I mean, certainly uh, Interstellar struck me as trying to, in some ways, consciously be the, the, the anti-2001 in the sense of being a um, as uh, emotional as um, 2000, uh, and 
as in 2001 is cold. Yeah, although I did read something uh, which actually really pissed me off about 2001. Uh, we're reading something for one of my classes, and it was an argument by, uh, not a student, but uh, someone from our book who was claiming that, uh, you know, like Google and technology were basically ruining humanity and all this shit. Um, the same, ironically, the same thing that he said that people said about typewriters and all these kinds of things. And at the end of it, he uh, does this whole bit at the end uh, where he interprets the, the scene with Hal as uh, an example of humanity becoming robotic and that's what the movie's about and i found that so wrong <laughs> that it actually made me mad i had to lecture my students that that's not what 2001 was doing in that scene and sorry which scene the uh the which scene with hal with ha- the whole scene with hal the, the that whole, whole s- sequence the whole sequence up to the point when he tries to kill them that that human is beca- that the humans are becoming um, inhuman. Uh, that's, or, that's what the scene's about. That the humans yeah. are becoming the robots. Yeah. And that and it's this, that scene is about how technology affects us by making us less human. And my response to that was no. It's about a robot becoming more human, or well, in this case, an artificial intelligence becoming more human. Oh, but I would definitely think that that both is there. I mean, um, uh, the, you know, Frank and Dave are so cold and um unemotional i mean the one of the big movements of that film is that hal is the only really um emotional character uh there well, is the chimps in the beginning well yeah so then, but that that's the movement right we we go towards the um uh you know an, an affectless humanity uh the uh and uh it's been pointed out that that infamous um graphic match cut between the bone and the satellite uh the bracing uh, the uh, uh brilliant and uh but merciless uh uh skipping over of the the, the int- so in that blink of an eye all of human history is passed over yeah right? uh to to and, and we we get there from we get from those apes from that first weapon to that mega weapon, uh, and then these um, these these humans that are um, just yeah, so flat, right? And so it's almost a relief when we get to the computer having a breakdown, uh, and uh, as we sort of move towards whatever the Star Child is. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I specifically robotic, I don't know, but there's definitely a contrast set up with these flat. Um, emotionless humans um, and the feeling computer. I could see that. That's not the argument he made. That's specifically technology that has, that has made us into the... Well... Yeah, he's making the claim that, that, we, that we're becoming machines versus... Mm. Which I don't see. I don't see the machine. I can see affectless that we're, we're moving emotion, but I don't see machine. No, yeah, it, I, I would agree with yeah, you there, yeah. Because... We're not, I mean, the reliance on technology is still readily apparent there. Uh, and I don't, uh, yeah, I just don't see that. Yeah, yeah. No, I wouldn't say that it's the, uh, yeah, I think that's a, that, that, would, that would be a misreading of the, uh, of the contrast. Yeah. But, you know, well, that's what happens when you, when you try to fit something into your, your viewpoint. His argument made no sense. He's an idiot. But, 
So is anybody who's trying to, like, I hate people who make that argument. You know, technology is ruining society. Society sucks. We're falling apart because we've got Google. Like, shut up. <laughs> uh, everything's okay. We got problems, but that just means we got to learn how to fix them. Stop blaming the technology for it. It's not going away. Like, I don't see that the point is of blaming the technology. Like, it's it, Google's not, like, they're not going to shut it down and go, gosh, it's making us dumb. We just got to, we got to ban it. We're not going to ban Google. Doesn't seem likely, no. No, it seems like, I feel like Google itself would probably have a shit fit. <laughs> so, anyway. And the other thing I watched was, uh, I finally got to Bad Lieutenant. And what did you think of that? Uh, it, it's not my favorite of his films. It, yeah. It's, um, it, it, it's not an easy film, that's for sure. <laughs> no, it's not an easy film. Uh, I felt that the... My biggest issue, I think, is that there isn't a progression that I see for the character. And that really bothered me because I don't have an emotional connection to him. And so there are scenes like, for example, where he's kind of drugged up and he's like, he's almost looks like he's having a walking seizure in these moments when he's walking around naked and he's just drunk and high as shit. And he's just in this room, just like ha- crying and having this weird emotional moment. But I have no connection to that because I don't understand who he was before he became this. Right, right. And so all I all I see is just the natural consequence of, of whatever had come before. I'm seeing the effect, but I'm not understanding where it comes from. So I, I, I think that's where I kind of, I wanted there to be more of a progression versus just having you know, a, a, this already bad character who's bad from the start having a thing blow up in his face, which doesn't seem that out of character for him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just had some issues with that. Um, I mean, Kaitel's performance is really good. Yeah. Was, he does a really good job here. And we definitely get uh, the deployment of the patented Harvey Kaitel primal moan. Yeah, he's he's wonderful in this. He certainly is. And there are certainly some very disturbing sequences um which yeah and that was written by zoe tamerlis uh miss 45 yeah who i still think miss 45 is his best movie oh this is i guess uh bad lieutenant was his uh most uh um, i guess his, his highest visibility film yeah and i could see i can see why from a performance perspective i mean it's it's a much stronger performance than he's had in any of his other films um you know, David Caruso's racist Italian aside. Uh, sorry, Caruso is in, he, he, a young Caruso is in, uh, China Girl by Ava Ferrara and basically plays a redheaded Italian who says racist things to Chinese people. It's so awful, his character. But like, we're not supposed to like him at any point in time. He's just a, he's just scum. No, well, but he's just uh, trying to imagine Caruso. As a racist redheaded Italian, <laughs> it's just it's just you don't imagine that because all you think is like, oh, well, he's in those CSI shows. So, so I guess you must be coming up to uh, body snatchers then, where you'll get to see uh, Meg Tilly do the uh, uh, the Donald Sutherland scream. Oh yeah, so it'll be interesting to see because I know that's a remake. So yeah, it's. Remaking the, it's almost, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but as I recall, it kind of feels 
just as the uh, Philip Kaufman film uh, could almost be a sequel rather than a remake. Oh, okay. Um, almost right because I mean, you you know there's um, uh, poor um, uh, oh I've forgotten the the lead from the original um, uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, from uh, the 1956 film running still running in the traffic screaming that they're coming they're coming and then getting uh, you know, run down by a car uh, the the Abel Ferrara film as I recall you could perceive it as potentially a sequel to the uh, the 78 version um or taking place in parallel with it. Oh, okay, um, that would be interesting. So then. it's uh, I mean yeah, it's interesting. I mean it's it all it's kind of it's confined to a military base. Um it's it's certainly the the weakest of the three. Well, I guess in the four now, uh, body snatch. Well, so yeah, it'll be in other words it's the well, it's, it's the second couch. It, it's <laughs> Yeah, well, okay, it's the second weakest of the, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's not a patch on the first two, but it's interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I'm slowing down a bit at the moment, which may be why people have not seen a lot from me is kind of doing a lot of stuff, <laughs> like teaching too much, trying to finish a PhD and going on the job market. All which, fun stuff. Oh, yeah. It's all, it's the most fun I've ever had. You know? It really is. Like, if if I could have more fun than this, I think I would explode with alcoholic rage. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not fun. You know, because you've already been through this process oh, yes, as a yes. teacher person. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, no, I yes, I look back on that very fondly. <laughs> yeah, very fond. Yeah, you just want to do it again. Oh yeah, you would yeah. love to sw- tr- switch places with me in a second. Yeah, easy, easy. Screw green cards and all that crap. But just, just come down. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so why don't we? Uh, we talked for a little bit about you know other stuff, uh, Wes Craven in general. But now we should probably talk about the movie of the de- the hour, as it were, which is the people under the stairs. And since David, I I asked you as the horror ninja of the podcast we're on together, uh, I asked you to pick this movie. And uh, I think it should be then your job to tell us what this movie's about and also maybe tell us why you picked it. Well, uh, the film is, um, uh, is about Fool, or well, Poindexter is his real name, but um, uh, a, played by Brandon Adams, who is uh, just turning 13. Uh, he uh, lives in the ghetto. His uh, mother is uh, grievously ill. Uh, and uh, he's convinced by Ving Rhames, uh, they're, they're on the verge of being uh, evicted, so he's convinced by Ving Rhames to take part in a robbery of the evil landlords, uh, who are played by um, Everett McGill and Wendy Roby, uh, who have a big house uh, in the suburbs, uh, which uh, turns out to be a house of horrors, where uh, they have been you know, keeping... Uh, uh, people well literally under the stairs uh they're essentially a psychotic brother and sister uh a, a an absolutely monstrous parody of um uh the the kind of uh nuclear white suburban uh family uh kidnapping children to try to make them into their uh, perfect child the only one who and then if they don't work out down into the basement they go the only one who is currently surviving is alice uh, and uh when uh, fool gets stuck in the house uh after Ving Rhames is taken out by uh, a psychotic uh man uh, Everett McGill 
uh, we follow uh, fools' attempts to escape uh, and to uh, defeat uh, man and woman, or mummy and daddy as they call themselves, even though they're brother and sister. Although the the man is once called Eldon in the film. Is he? I have to say that's yeah. a detail I missed. Uh, who, who calls him that? Uh, oh. It is Alice, I believe, that calls him that once. I, I read this in the trivia because I missed it too. Uh, it's not. It, I think it's one of those things where it's where it's said, but it's not made okay. very clear. So I think it's a detail most people will miss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because he's not he's not credited as Eldon. He's credited as Man. So the reason I picked this, I have to say, I I uh, hesitated uh, over uh, between a, a few films. Uh, the I guess primarily this and New Nightmare, which was. Um, his, uh, his, his, the only other uh, Nightmare on Elm Street film that he directed, and um, I mean certainly his the Scream films are were his biggest mainstream success uh, and have the highest visibility with the um, well they're the biggest hits uh, perhaps not quite as much now iconic visibility as Freddy Krueger uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, but. Uh, I find um, the Scream films, though fun, are not his most interesting films. Uh, and I think uh, for him as a director, I also wanted to look at a film where he was the writer. Uh, and I find the Kevin Williamson scripts a little too self-consciously clever, um, and not as and and pretty surface. They're not as committed to uh, the social critique as Wes Craven's own scripts uh, when he's on the money. So the people... uh, New Nightmare, I think, is uh, also, as far as a uh, metafilmic uh, meditation, is a more interesting movie than the Scream films. But uh, The People Under the Stairs is, I think, Craven's most overt... Uh, and, and sustained exercise in social criticism and follows a line that begins with Last House on the Left, goes through uh, The Hills Have Eyes, uh, is present to greater or lesser degrees in, in things like Nightmare on Elm Street, but really uh, is, at the, is the heart and soul of the people under the stairs. And so, for that reason, uh, I, those reasons, I felt like if we just have to pick one Wes Craven film, let's see the one that's where it really is by him, uh, and a number of his uh, interests are all coming together in what is, in many ways, a uh, it's a it's a fairy tale. Uh, I think the Brothers Grimm would have uh, grooved on this uh, very nicely. No oh, man, you've got some weird ass fairy tales. <laughs> uh, uh, really? Uh, you know, if you look at the uh, the, the, the 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 brothers uh, Grimm tales and their unexpurgated for, uh, versions with all the cannibalism and uh, uh, child fair. murder and uh, you know, um, but, I think. But yeah, but you know, but yeah, okay, it's fair. That's fair. Uh, I just in the modern age we don't call those fairy tales anymore. We call them nightmares or real life. <laughs> But this is, I think, uh, the people under the stairs yeah. is 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 presented as a fairy tale, and that the uh, uh, M- McGill and Roby, who of course, and this is in in the immediate wake of uh, their visibility on Twin Peaks, 
uh, where they where they played a couple also. Uh, so uh, they, but the way that they're they're portrayed here and their house, I mean, they might as well be the Wicked Witch of Hansel and Gretel. Uh, the uh, or rather, she's the witch and he's an ogre. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the, their house is um, is is a pretty much a gothic castle. Uh, it's a it's a place that people tell stories about. Uh, it, it's this whole other world, uh, and um, a fool, uh, especially after you know we we open with a tarot card reading. Yeah, uh, and yeah. A lesson in archetypes. Uh, we, he is told, "This is your card. This is your name," and uh, he outwits them um, just uh, as uh, in in classic Jack the Giant Slayer uh, or and or Jack and the Beanstalk form. Yeah, and I and I think that 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 opening scene is is rather interesting because it sort of it sets up the narrative in a way that uh, is non-specific, right? Because it, it is, as as they say, right? It's a tarot reading, so of course with tarot, you're reading these kind of general archetypal events, right? Or characters, right? So like it says, like, there's death, but it doesn't specify death in what sense. Like, whose death? Is it going to be the character's death? Is it going to be someone else's death? There's just going to be death somewhere around? Well, it could be any one of those, but we know that it's coming. Death is coming, we just don't know what it is. Granted, we also know because it's a horror movie, probably someone's going to die. It's kind of inevitable. Um, uh, but even like that, that character arc, right, that it tells us right in the beginning when we see that she calls him the fool, right, and she describes the card, right, look at the, the fool, he's about to walk off the cliff, right, it looks like he's about to walk off the cliff, but what she says is not that he's actually going to walk off, but that he has to make a decision on what he's going to do. Is he going to look down and realize, right, so is he going to make that decision or is he going to keep going in the same direction? And that that leaves that card rather open to, to possibility versus what we might think of where we, when we might define someone as a fool as being, you know, basically ignorant and stupid. She defines it as, no, it's the fool is, in your case, that you're a young child. You have to kind of figure out the activity. And, of course, the first act that he decides to go on is a robbery, uh, which turns out to probably have been the wrong act, but then in the end, possibly also the right act. Yeah. With some horrible consequences as a result but uh, i do i like that setup right from the beginning uh i think that's very interesting i think uh, it's playing into the sort of horror genre and perhaps also playing in into what you're talking about with the idea of the fairy tale um or in, or perhaps the myth um yeah well, it's, it's, it's declaring itself to be a parable of some kind, right? Uh, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, they go in adding all the ability of it being his 13th birthday, so this is a coming-of-age story, too. Uh, and then and uh, and then using the mechanism of the, the, the horror film uh, and the, the, the this kind of the, the archetypal qualities, while well, signaling that this is supposed to be interpreted. So that when we uh, then you know we we are also invited to very explicitly to uh, see this as a uh, a parable on the uh, on predatory capitalism, right? Uh, the yeah. uh, you know the, the as uh, I think it was the uh, the website um, uh, Graveyard Shift Sisters was pointing out. Uh, the film is unusual in uh, certainly in the era in which it emerged, uh, as far as uh, 
if we look at the uh, the you know, we have the the suburban setting and we have the ghetto setting. It's the in the ghetto that we have, um, you know, though the obviously lots and lots of problems. But there, there's a sense of community. We have families that are helping each other, uh, and uh, you know, it, it's it's not either um, just uh, sort of some a, a crime-infested hell hellhole or the Huxtables as the as the two uh, sort of counters. Uh, yeah. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, poles that um, uh, were, uh, you know, as 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 options of for characters, right? They all the monstrosity is located in the um, uh, in, the white in, supremacist suburban household, right? Uh, and it, but which is very very clearly shown to be uh, sustained by the system in which it is uh, ensconced, right? The uh, when when fool. Uh, calls the police. It's not because he actually expects them to do anything. He knows that uh, uh, they they aren't going to be useful. He's using the police as a diversion to get back into the house and, and try to rescue Alice, bracket in Wonderland. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the uh, you know we we see over and over and over again uh, over the course of the film um, why the. Uh, uh, man and woman are able to keep committing their crimes, uh, as well as what the effect of, I mean, th- th- their crimes are not just, uh, keeping people trapped in a basement. They're also, uh, guilty of keeping people trapped in an economic basement. Well, and, and there, uh, I think there's another aspect of that, that, that we don't want to forget is, uh, these are very explicitly racist characters. Yes. And they're racist to us in the sense that they're presented to us as racist. But there is that scene towards the end when the community of predominantly black people show up at their house because they know Fool is in the house, right? They're trying to create some sort of a diversion or something. Um, and she almost yells out, right? It's just a bunch of, yeah, you know, and then almost blurts out. She thinks she says, mm. she makes a noise. Uh, but we know earlier that she's called them, that uh, you know, she's called them niggers. She said this word to them. On purpose, or I mean, not to them specifically, but in in our presence. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of the crime that's going on here. Is this is the commentary that this film is engaged in is a sort of post civil rights era racism, where it's now no longer publicly acceptable to be racist. That scene when the cops show up and she basically pretends to be glorious nineteen uh, fifties housewife. Right. She's bringing them tea and all of this stuff, treating them in this enormously kind way. It's all part of a face to hide who they really are, which is this isolationist, racist, uh, suburban couple, um, fake couple. It's because it turned out to be brother and sister, but whatever. It's they're weird. Um, I think all of that's kind of what's going on here. I mean, there's there's obviously the racial politics in this from the start. The most obviously in the fact that our, our main characters are from the ghetto. Um, they define themselves as such, and they're predominantly African American. In fact, almost all of our main characters, except for the uh, the um, the one other criminal dude whose name I've forgotten, who dies basically almost immediately. Uh, yeah, he's the only I think white character who isn't a police officer Spencer. or the couple. Yes, Spencer. Sorry, um, that commentary is made clear right from the start that this is what's happening. It's just, it's something that's affecting the black community, and it's something that is affecting the poor. Uh, and that it is coming from a closeted racism that behind closed doors will announce itself to us as being explicitly and overtly racist, and that's a motivating factor, but to the public presents itself 
as being elsewhere. And I think that's part of what is insidious about that is at least with classic old school racism, we know who the racists are. With this new racism, they're hiding in behind closed doors and we don't see them. But I think further than that, it's clear that it's the ent- the entire system is racist because they, uh, I mean, though they'll only use those words behind closed doors. When they're speaking to the police and the police are speaking to them, they and the police are, st- are speaking in code, right? They both know what they're talking about, but you know, they, we, we don't actually say these words, but, uh, the, uh, you know, when there's, uh, when, uh, she's saying to the uh, the cops who first come by that uh, you know sometimes it it feels like living in a prison and uh, you know, and they're saying oh yeah yeah we you know, we hear you basically right um, the um, uh, when the um, there's the bigger investigation and uh, and she and man put on a big show and he's you know he's even smoking a pipe uh, doing his best J.R. Bob Dobbs thing yeah. uh, the uh, and you know the the investigation that's going on is very um, pro forma, right? And you know, there's a discussion. Oh, where did you get this great furniture? And thanks for the cake and and this and that. Uh, I'm reminded of this um, uh, of a crack in the uh, the MST3K episode with Mitchell, uh, where uh, you know, an investigation is is, is beginning and. Uh, uh, one of the other robots cracks. So, well, you're rich and white. This looks all right to me. Uh, and that's the what we have going on there, right? Uh, the uh, I think what, what what the film is at pains to uh, point out is that as grotesque as these two are, they're not an aberration exactly. Uh, they're uh, they're not um, something that has removed itself from a system that's otherwise fine there's simply the the uh the the logical result uh of that system i guess the challenge i would make there is uh it's not clear to me in the film whether or not uh whether or not the 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 police are in on this system or are unwitting participants in it well they're not they're not um um complicit in the sense that uh they, they know, know it's going on no they don't know what what's going on but okay that, but, then okay then we're not in disagreement there yeah. that's what the point i would make is that you know the, we, i mean it may be possible that that you know i'm not suggesting that the police in the real world aren't necessarily racist but in the context of the film i get the sense that the police are are reinforcing a racist system but are are not fully aware that that's what they're doing because you say right that they're speaking in code i get the sense that it's it's woman and man are speaking in code and that the police don't necessarily know that which code they're speaking in. well they're speaking code in the sense of uh, that it, of, of, of a racist code right they uh the code that they're speaking uh is is acknowledge is is the assumption being who are criminals and who are innocent and who is innocent right and, and i get that that's what that i think it's woman who's saying this i get that that's exactly what she means because we know that's part of her character yeah, but the police i don't of- know if the police are aware that that is like that, that like you get what I mean. Like they may, they be, they may think that what what woman is saying is that it's the ghetto, which is overwhelmingly black, versus spe- explicitly I'm referring to black people, which is what she's referring to. So I guess like that's what I what isn't made clear to me in the film is that 
that they're aware that they're using whether or not they're using the same code. Okay, or certainly re related ones, I guess. In that, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I I won't deny that that the codes are related and that the consequences are still racist consequences. But that there there's a I guess what I'm getting at is that 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 there there are different layers of racism. There's the kind of systemic racism, which is what we're talking about now, which is you you could be participating in systemic racism and not even know it. Right. Because that's that's kind of the point. It's built into the structures of your day to day life. And then there's the kind of insidious uh, behind the doors racism, which is woman and man, where they declare behind doors that they are that they hate niggers. And then to everyone else, they present as the kind white face where we're glorious, rich, like the, the example you gave, right? You're a rich white person. Everything's fine here. That's, I think, the implication when they show up, the police show up and they, they search the house thinking that there that there should have been a, a abuse but of course the house is everything is in order so everything looks wonderful and hunky dory um so i think that that's there's like these different layers like that and that that's the problem that it's kind of playing in where the horror is is pushing against is all of the the different layers of the racism that has not been dismantled this is 1991 so this is I mean, right flat in the middle of the racial tensions that are occurring in Los Angeles, uh, where you'd have the riots. I can't remember exactly when the riots, I think the riots were 91, but I could I be they wrong. Were, uh, yeah, I think they were a little bit, um, well, I should, you know, uh, yeah. I shouldn't say not being the American on the podcast, but uh, um, <laughs> I thought they were right a little now. bit after the film. Oh, you're right. You know, it's 90, 92. That's so yeah, okay. the year after. But I mean that that's not something that just spontaneously spurs up, right? No, so it's, no, yeah, yeah. No. I mean, it's it, it, it certainly the film is speaking to its its time, and I think the one of the nice touches with um, uh, in in sort of showing fools move to to maturity is his two interaction or um, two moments where he uh, I shouldn't say interaction with the police because one of them has failed, but the, um, the, the 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 first time that the police are near the house. We see him desperately pounding on the uh, the the window, uh, trying to get their attention. Right, it's like, "Hey, police!" Right, um, and of course they cannot hear him. Right, right. so yeah, it's a, glass, yeah, yeah, uh, and so that's sort of a nicely symbolic uh, moment there that you know he is seeking help and will not be heard, um, and if and and would merely be uh, viewed as as a criminal. So um, when he when the second time round when they're going to come to the house is due to his instigation. But th this time, when he makes that phone call, he knows darn well that he's not going to get any help. And so he simply is, is now um, using uh, using the system against itself, uh, in a way, uh, uh, tr triggering an event that will allow him to get into the house and take care of things himself. Yeah, and, and of course, in the process, maybe intentionally or otherwise, uh, instigating community action. Because they basically show up, it as like you know, almost like they're they're about to do vigilante justice, community justice. I mean, that's basically what they do. In a sense, yeah, and, and I guess I'd be uh, I'm hesitating over the word vigilante, and that you know, they, they, it's clearly nonviolent. Um, what they have uh, as when they have arrived there, right? It, it's a confrontation uh, with the people who have. I mean, it's not just looking for fool. But uh, they're they're standing up to these people for what they've done to their community. Yeah, overtly so, right to their face. I mean, there's that point even when when woman tries to like she closes the door the first time, and then like the uh, fool's sister knocks again and says, "I'm not done with you." 
and then goes into her spiel and and basically forces her to listen and to accept the the overt criticism to her face. I mean, this is like, and I think it's interesting that it's, it's uh, Robbie, right? It's, it's the actress's name, the the place woman, right? That the further along that we get into the narrative, the more haggard she appears. Uh, you know, she's being get, getting punched and kicked and all these kinds of things. But, you know, towards the end, I mean, she really looks like the facade is is like almost like it's like her face is literally being wiped off of off, like the skin and everything. Like It just looks like she's just falling apart while desperate to maintain this illusion of, well, the illusion she's manufactured for herself, even not recognizing the contradictions in it. So I, I do love certain aspects of that a, a lot. And this is, uh, like I said, this is something that we see in um, in a number of Craven's works, um, and why um, I would say he does. Um, I, I would call him an auteur, uh, in that I mean, not not all of his films, you know, his, you know, his output was uneven. Uh, some films are um, much better than others, uh, but uh, that there is. Um, in was well, as it certainly has been pointed out um of the uh the the horror film directors to emerge in the 1970s his was wound up being one of the most consistently successful careers uh in fact I mean, he ended on on a high note uh, at least commercially with the, uh, the 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 scream franchise um and uh, as opposed to the uh, uh the sort of the, the the huge splash uh, with um like say Toby Hooper in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, or a, a number of early impressive works, and then a career uh, downslide. Uh, Craven perhaps was more of a, a journeyman director, but um, you know he'd he'd have some films that were less successful than others, and then he'd come back and have something that was um, uh, that, that did very well. Um, but in um, a lot of his movies, so always work you know within the the, the a, a commercial or an exploitation um, mode. There is a recurring interest, and uh, and one of those is this um, deconstruction of the, uh, the the white middle class. Um, the so last house on the left uh, having uh, the um, this this family descend into the uh, you know into the same kind of savagery as the uh, the. Um, the, the, as the villains of the um, of, of the film, uh, the hills have eyes. Uh, same kind of thing. Um, the the sort of the suburban nightmares that inhabit Deadly Friend, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, it's he it, it keeps coming back to that some of, the, some of the, those ideas, and uh, and I, I, I guess the people under the stairs is. Um, I don't know. I guess it feels like a kind of a culmination to me uh, for that because he would um, it, like all these ideas are are writ large now in that one, um, and I don't know that he would ever do another film that was well. I, I, I guess as far as the um, another movie that was absolutely explicit in working out its ideas would be New Nightmare. Uh, which, you know, his most, uh, explicit, you know, it, far more metafilmic even than the Scream films. Uh, where, I mean, he's, he, he plays himself in that film. Almost all of the, uh, so many of the, the characters are playing themselves. 
uh, in in New Nightmare. And then after that, uh, we uh, uh, we we move into the the Scream films and Red Eye, uh, and there's is some interesting work being done, but less personal. Um, I think uh, People Under the Stairs and New Nightmare were the end of the really personal um, Wes Craven films. Interesting, interesting. So, so okay, so setting aside some of the, the political elements, because, I mean, there's a lot here to work with. I mean, it's very overt uh, and direct. Um, I do have an issue with this film, and I suspect it's an issue that, that will explain why it has uh, something like a, a 59% or something. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's sort of on the cusp between being uh, uh, rotten and fresh. Uh, and I think it's for me the biggest issue I have with this film is its tone. There are moments <laughs> where the tone is uh, it. It's what I would expect. It's it's setting up a kind of horror film. It's got the tension. It's got the horrific qualities. I mean, that first time that they go, he goes down into the uh, the basement and the people under the stairs. With the flashlights, we don't know what's going on yet. We don't know who they are, and they're terrifying. And we see them trying to eat the body, and immediately our, we have all these these sets of expectations, right? That they're monstrous creatures, or they're people who lost their humanity. That turns out not to be true, per se. Their humanity's been taken from them, uh, but they turn out to be perfectly capable of rationalization. And there is that cute moment when the they... They sneak out of the house and go through the crowd and just disappear into the night like little creatures. Uh, it's kind of amusing. But the issue I have is, and I think this is maybe something that's intentional on Craven's part, is we have a main character who, uh, by the way, is a Mighty Duck, uh, in case you didn't realize that that's who the actor is. It's one of the Mighty Ducks. He's a hockey player now? Oh, you mean, oh, you mean from those movies? From the movies, the oh, movie okay. Mighty Ducks. He's in the first two Mighty Duck movies. Oh, okay. Did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's had a wonderful career. Uh, the Mighty Ducks movies are easily some of the greatest films of all time. Uh, we may have to watch one one day. Uh, I'm just teasing. They are great. I just, yeah. But anyway, um, so the problem is is that uh, we have this the, the, this child main character who basically is is the only surviving member of the initial cast in terms of the people entering the house. And then, of course, we get the inclusion of Alice, who's a 12-year-old being played by a 17-year-old woman. Um, and I feel like Craven doesn't want to commit to making a a horror film that, in the strictest sense, a film that's going to terrify us. I feel like because he has this child character and, and two characters who are children, he keeps backing away by having rather silly, almost slapsticky uh, uh, scenes. So, Like when, when Prince the Dog slides down the, uh, it goes down the chute in the, in the drawer? Sure, scenes where uh, our main character fool punches man in the balls, uh, you know, the, the banging him over the head with lamps, these kinds of things that, that really, for me, pulled me out mm -hmm. of what was mm -hmm. the horrific qualities. And it just felt uneven. It, it seemed to me that, look, it needs to make a decision. It needs to be a film that is going to be horror that's maybe meant for younger audiences. That is, it'll be scary, but it won't be quite the kind of the 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 immense terror that you might expect of, say, a Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, or it needs to go into that. It needs to be that terror. It needs to give us more of the terror and take away some of the silly. Mm-hmm. Cause, yeah. Yeah, I see. I see what you mean, and it's um, 
Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because the uh, um, I mean, we even see that that, that odd mix um, right at the start of his career with Last House on the Left, which I mean has some you know is full of appalling violence. Uh, it's a an, uh, Last House on the Left is an extremely unpleasant movie. Um, the uh, you know it, we could um, regard it as a, as a direct ancestor to uh, contemporary torture porn if we uh, want to use uh, that term. Um, at the same time, of course, it's also um, a, um, a, a, a smart and interesting remake of um, Ingmar Bergman's *The Virgin Spring*. Um, but that, in and amongst the, the sort of these the, the horrible scenes of rape and torture and murder that that, uh, that, that are filling the, the the first half of the film, uh, and then and then all the the, the murders that, uh, that that fill up the second half, we have these two incompetent um, uh, police officers bumbling along uh, uh, the road, and just this a weird comic relief that comes out of nowhere and feels out of keeping with the the, the darkness of the rest of the movie. Um, and so, you know, there, and you know, we may, you may be seeing some of that. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There, are these, there are these weird tonal shifts, and I think, um, and I, I, was, I was thinking about that again as I was, I was watching it. And from the perspective of it being an adult horror movie, um, then the some of this, I mean, though humor and horror have been, um. Or two two sides of the same coin, and have been fused together from the throughout the entire history of horror. Uh, yeah, it, it could feel like well, make up your mind, which are you? But I think if um, we regard this again more as a fairy tale, uh, and from and sort of view the movie as if we were fooled. Uh, it starts to become a little more of a, of a piece, and I was I was struck with um, uh, yesterday actually uh, the um, the Graveyard Shift sisters were were tweeting about the the, the film um, uh, quite a bit, uh, actually mentioning such little details which I, I was unaware of that uh, Hilary Swank uh, auditioned for the role of Roach. Yeah, yeah, I heard um, that. Yeah, that uh, since it was um, uh, the, the the character was written to be either male or female. Um, at any rate. Um, and I saw, and some of the the um, uh, the people who were responding to their uh, to their tweets uh, were talking about how much they loved the film, and and some and, and there's at least a couple of references how much they wished they had seen that film when they were kids. Uh, and you know, on the one hand, you think, well, gee, there's a lot of dismemberment and gore for um, for a kids' film, but I've seen a couple of references to it of almost being like a children's movie. And I guess I come back to the Brothers Grimm again, with uh, all of their dismemberment and cannibalism. Uh, that it is, um, yeah. There, there's no way you would ever want to. This would could ever be marketed as a children's movie. Uh, but in some ways, it is. Uh, that if we look at it as a fairy tale, that if we if we put ourselves uh, to watch this as the age of fool. Then this mixture of horror and humor uh, make a lot more sense to me uh, from that perspective. Uh, that it that's that is the experience of those sorts of stories. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, it just I, it doesn't work for me, um, which I admit is just entirely subjective. Uh, well, and I, yeah, I mean, I, there's certainly uh, films that, that do, do the mix which have not worked for me at all. In fact, I, uh, um, I, can, I can look at a lot of the stuff that came out of the 80s um, as this, the, you know, the blight of horror comedies. Don't get me started on Lost Boys. <laughs> oh no, you can't say anything bad about that because someone will show up at your house. Yeah, you? very likely. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm from Santa Cruz. Trust me, someone <laughs> will show up at your house. Um, but so yeah, I, it is. Um, I, and, and it's it's funny. So watching this again, it was like I guess I was asking myself is like there's there's some mixes here that would normally bother me. And they're not in this particular instance, and and I think it's bec- because it's it, it, of its um, uh, engagement as a fairy tale that it worked. It, it felt less jarring to me and more of a piece. I mean, when you were talking about that, it reminded me. Um, I mean, I've read some of Clive Barker's work, and some of Clive Barker's work has that feeling, that kind of fairy tale feeling, but with the horrific elements. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know what what it is about that. Uh, it just doesn't work for me uh, in the same way as, say, something like It Follows. I mean, granted, It Follows drastically different type of film, but uh, I'm much more drawn to the type of horror that you'll find in It Follows than I am to either the torture porn variety of films uh, or the these kinds of films with, with that with with that what I describe as uneven tone, um, although I go, suppose you could make the the argument that that the film is uh, on the verge between ages in the same way that our main character is, which is something you had kind of suggested earlier, uh, which I think that's that makes it a much more interesting film. If you it, think of it it's also I think because everything in it is so exaggerated. I mean, unlike um, I mean, some Craven certainly had more serious horror films like Nightmare on Elm Street, like uh, New Nightmare, like um, The Hills of Eyes. Um, but uh, this one is, I guess another way of looking at it is a kind of black comedy uh, because the every, once we get into that house, everything is pitched at such um, a high level, right? The, there's nothing subtle in there at all. I mean, uh, uh, Ro- uh, Wendy Roby and Evelyn, Everett McGill are... You know, they, they've 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 turned the, uh, the the camp crank up to eleven right from the start. I mean, even up to the point when when man dresses up in that uh, bondage suit yeah. and in this leather like Catwoman style bondage suit and is running around with a shotgun trying to kill Roach in the wall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, all of that the and the or the, the slapstick with um um with with uh, the uh, prince, the dog, and. Uh, uh, the, I mean, everything in that house is, is over the top. So, I mean, whereas it doesn't go quite to the same pitch as, say, um, Sam Raimi's, uh, uh, Evil Dead 2 or, or Army of Darkness, where we were into full on splatstick and, uh, or, or say Peter Jackson's early films. Um, it doesn't, uh, so it's not quite there, but it, um, it is, uh, yeah, I think black comedy, uh, in that, um, the, or, or, or on that, 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 that cusp, or, or, but definitely the grotesque is, is its mode. 
which is again in keeping with the fairy tale, right? Where everything is big and everything is exaggerated. Uh, and, uh, the, it, it is a film, um, that is using this fairy tale mode where nothing is, uh, is realistic to talk about very real world issues. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Sure. But I mean, I, I get, I mean, I certainly get what you, what you mean. Um, and, uh, I guess it, it, I guess it strikes me that you were mentioning that because I was, as I was watching it again, I was wondering why is this not bothering me when in many other films it would. Yeah, and yeah, for me that that is a, a, an issue that did bug me because um, I just kind of wanted it to stick with a tone, like be the the black comedy, be that kind of film, or be a little bit more serious. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there's there's plenty here that you, I mean, if you're the type of person who wants to analyze film, there's plenty here to to discuss in terms of the the what these elements say about the characters. Um, I mean, in particular, right, that that ridiculous bondage suit. Yeah, and it's a film it's, that invites interpretation, doesn't it? Right, since it's op- it's it's, pr- it's um, opening seconds are an interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's so many different qualities of this that are uh, that that lead you to interpretation. I mean, even some parts of it where it doesn't even explain things. Like it doesn't explain to us why he wears that suit. No, no, <laughs> he just does. <laughs> yeah. But yet, at he, the same he, time, we're compelled to wonder why. Why is that the suit he takes into battle? Right. Well, because then it, it's like this. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it kind of symbolically, it makes perfect sense, right? It's like it's like pushing his maleness into totally hyperbolic uh, realms. Um, yeah. And uh, you know um, how he gets into that damn thing so fast <laughs> is another question. Uh, but but I mean, everything about him, he's he's always a caricature, right? He's he's always an exaggerated um, incarnation of masculinity. Uh, just as, um, uh, uh, Wendy Roby is always an exaggerated, uh, cartoon of particular, uh, particular images of femininity. That, uh, you know, each of the characters is, is, is embodying consciously or not. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, well, um, well, we're running a little on the long side. Yeah, so I guess we should wrap this up. So we, we I guess we have to wrap it up. Um, so, uh, in any case, so for folks who do not recall, because it's been a while since we've had an episode out, uh, we're also doing another film. Uh, that we did. The, we're doing the Wes Craven because he passed away last month, and it was kind of it seemed right to do in October to do a Wes Craven film, even though we had already picked another Halloween film. And that other Halloween or, well, it's rather horror-ish related film, will be Near Dark, uh, directed by Catherine Bigelow. So we'll be also doing that soon-ish. And we also need to pick for next month's movie, which has been left up to me to select. Uh, And uh, I'm going to switch things up a bit, David, because we've been doing, we've done, let's see, we've done horror, we've done science fiction, we've done uh, romantic comedy, we've done you know, sort of more of a drama. We've done crime dramas, all these kinds of things. Uh, I'm going to go with a Western. Funny. I was just going to guess that. Isn't that funny? Yeah. We've not done a Western yet. And I was looking and thinking about what would I want to do? What what movie would I want us to watch? 
And I am stuck between two. And I don't know which one to pick, David. And what are they? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and High Noon. Oh. Two, yeah, two wonderful ones there. Yeah, that's that's a tough choice. Um, so, I have seen The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I've not seen High Noon. <laughs> so we're going to go with High Noon. All right, sounds great. Uh, we're going to pick a Western I've not seen, which is weird because my... My grandfather, when he got ill, uh, we used to keep the TV on for him, and it would always be the Western Channel. And so I've probably seen High Noon, and I just don't remember it, because I've seen probably every Western ever made. Well, and if you've seen Outland, you've also seen High Noon. Don't know if I've seen that one either. I bet you if you take the uh, a top 100 list of, of Western films made between 1940 and 1960, I've probably seen it and don't even realize yeah. it. <laughs> well, here I, I was thinking of the uh, 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 Sean Connery on uh, uh, on EO battling um, uh, uh, evil space corporations. Oh, that sounds fun! It's a remake of High Noon, just just uh, in the orbit of Jupiter. That's cool. I want to watch that now. So, well, I think that'll be a, a, a high noon is a great choice. Uh, it'll give us lots to talk about. Yeah, yeah, it'll it'll be a different genre. We've not done yet, uh, and we're also going to jump back in time by roughly forty years. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that's good when we jump back in time. We go do different genres. We, you know, have a mm-hmm. little bit of fun. Yeah, yeah, good, uh, good choice. Yep, and then we will have one more period we have yet to do a film from. We haven't done anything from the silent era yet. Not yet. Not not a single silent film. Yes, well, we'll have to fix that. We will have to fix that. I mean, I was going to pick a Chapman. Or Chaplin, sorry. It's Charlie Chaplin, not Chapman. What the hell am I saying? I'm saying stupid things. Uh, but then I realized my favorite film by him isn't a silent film. It's actually The, the, the Great the, Dictator. The, the Great Dictator. I love that film. It is very funny, that film. It's brilliant. Yeah. But it's not a silent film. No. So you do modern times, I guess, but. Well, we have. Oh, well, I guess we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll get to, we'll get to the twenties the, the or before in due course. Indeed. Uh, we do have to fill those out. Uh, at some point, uh, we will have to go even farther back in time until one day we have covered a film from every decade. Starting in the 1890s. Okay, well, if there's a film we can watch in the 1890s, then we'll have to do that one eventually. Yeah. So, perfect. Well, so thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to uh, leave a comment, you can go to totallypretentious.com or send us an email, totallypretentious at gmail.com. You can also find uh, both of us on the Twitters. I'm at Sean Duke, and David is at David underscore Annandale. So if you want to yell at us about whether or not we got the interpretation right, that's the place to do it. Makes sense? That makes perfect sense. Perfect. Well, thanks, David, for making this happen. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you, Sean. This has been fun. Yep. And I'll see everybody later. Bye. Bye.